Vladimir Putin has stolen over a 20-year period a trillion dollars from the Russian people. There's no question in my mind that he is a total and absolute criminal, and he's made more money from his crimes than any other criminal in the history of crime. The Russian state, at its highest level, sanctioned the killing of a British citizen on the streets of our capital city. This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realize is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. It's a war fought on many fronts, sometimes with soldiers, guns, and missiles. 20% of Georgia is still occupied by Russia. The whole of Crimea has been unlawfully occupied by Russia since the so-called annexation. The war in eastern Ukraine, which is an endless, horrible, bloody conflict resembling the trenches of the First World War, is left there festering and supported and sponsored by Russia. Yesterday, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down over Ukraine near the Russian border. Sometimes a new type of warfare, cyber attacks and disinformation, plus polonium and chemical weapons. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. There is cyber. There is strategic communications. There is influence with the capital I. There's psychological operations. All of these come together in one seamless whole. And cyber is just the technical representation of information that they're seeking to influence. Sowing the information environment with so many different explanations for any given thing that might be going on that people believe nothing. In every domain except open military conflict, Russia is already mentally in a state of conflict with the West. The big steel has made some people very rich, while others have been destroyed. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. The principal beneficiary of the big steel is Russia's president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And his behavior is ruthless. Russia still pretends it's a democracy, and people in Russia sort of expect it to be a democracy. And there are still elections. And Putin kills all of his opponents. Putin stands for two things, KGB and organized crime. That means power and money. Among the casualties has been truth itself. After the Skripal attempted poisoning, I think the Russian ambassador came up with at least 35 different versions of events all of which were self-contradictory. So by his own definition, he must have been lying. And there's a bigger picture. Russia wants to rearrange the world to its own advantage. It's happening right now. We are not at war with Russia, but Russia mentally is at war with us. If you watch Russian television, if you pay attention to Russian media, there is a constant non-stop attack on America and on the West. There is constant portrayal of Europe as a failing society. All of this is a way of 
making sure that ordinary Russians are not somehow attracted to European society or not supportive of, of the ideas or ideals of, of democracy. That's Anne Applebaum. She's a journalist and historian and expert on Russia and Eastern Europe. We'll hear more from Anne as the big steel takes us from the oil fields of Siberia to the courts in The Hague and multi-million dollar mansions in London and New York. We'll meet academics, businessmen, politicians, and those touched directly by the actions of the Russian regime. I'm Gavin Esler. Welcome to episode one of The Big Steel, The Rivals, Vladimir Putin and Mikhail Khodorkovsky. In order to understand Russia in the present, we need a look at the recent past. For 70 years, the Soviet Union and its communist empire stretched all the way from the Pacific Ocean to Germany. Russia itself has 11 time zones. Communism meant everything was run by the state and run mostly badly. Investment and technology lagged way behind the West. And so when the Soviet Union finally collapsed in 1991, a great nation was left with crumbling infrastructure, out-of-date industries, no money and no clear way forward. The West had won the Cold War battle of ideas, and some hoped Russia would embrace capitalism and liberal economic reforms. But in the short term, President Boris Yeltsin's government needed cash, and quickly. Their answer was to sell off state-owned enterprises. By 1996, big, outdated industries, oil, gas and steel, were privatised. That meant any Russian with access to serious money, a small band of men often with close ties to Yeltsin and the Kremlin, took control of key parts of the economy. One was Mikhail Khodorkovsky, a young entrepreneur who had owned a cafe, launched a small bank, made some money and played a role in Yeltsin's government. By 1993, he was deputy minister for fuel and energy, and Khodorkovsky seized his big chance. His bank... Menetep bought shares in the state-run Yukos Oil Company. But another ambitious young Russian was also on the rise, Vladimir Putin. His background was equally humble. While Khodorkovsky chose business, Putin chose the KGB and politics. Rising from obscurity through the bureaucracy of Russia's second city, St. Petersburg, to the inner circle of the Kremlin. But how on earth did an obscure KGB colonel working as a spy in East Germany, he was based in Dresden when the Iron Curtain fell, end up as the richest man in the world? Mark Galliotti is a scholar who studies the former Soviet Union, the new Russia, and of course, Vladimir Putin. He was in many ways the unknown figure when he suddenly sort of became prime minister and then president. His career up to the point of being tapped to become president was essentially working for corrupt figures and having their back and clearing up their messes and generally ensuring that they could get out of things all right. Whether it was the mayor of, of Leningrad that then became St. Petersburg, whether it was people in the um, sort of Kremlin administration when he, when he moved to Moscow, or whether it was President Yeltsin and the people around him. And he has crafted this myth retrospectively of Putin, the Russian James Bond, Putin, the world bestriding Colossus. But that's the whole point. This is modern Russia. Um, this is a country which has, I think, been ahead of the curve in understanding how in modern politics, image is all. And the Russians have been very good at playing the image games. He was 
in the KGB, he likes to be thought of as the KGB's James Bond. But he was actually quite a boring bureaucrat in Dresden, which is not the powerhouse of anything, really. There's this notion that he was somehow a Russian James Bond, when in many ways he was more of a Miss Moneypenny. He was a clerk, he was a, a handler of information. I mean, he, he wrote reports that went to Moscow. We don't know if anyone actually read them. Um, although he was in the first chief directorate, which was meant to be the elite status, the Foreign Intelligence Department, he never got exactly beyond East Germany. In May 2000, former KGB Colonel Vladimir Putin was sworn in as Russia's president. But he was useful to men in power. I mean, that's the, that's the interesting thing. People in power could turn to him and he could clean up their messes. He has turned out to be more than the convenient placeholder that I think people had assumed. I mean, if you look at the people who backed him and, in a way, brought him not just to Moscow, but all the way through the prime minister's position to the presidency, this was a, a cabal of powerful political and economic interests who felt, look, the country was in a mess. It needed to have someone who could help bring order, bring the state back but at the same time, who needed to be aware that he was basically governing in their interests. And the interesting thing is that having been the loyal bagman up to the point where he was president, very, very quickly, once he was in the big office, he gathered the oligarchs, he made it clear to them that there were new rules of the game, that they could hold on to their ill-gotten gains, but only so long as they kept out of politics and did what they were told. So in, in other words, he was absolutely, up to that point, he was this rather sort of drab figure who everyone thought they could control. But once he was in power, he definitely demonstrated that they had misunderstood what they were getting. What they were getting was a leader who exploited the weaknesses of a changing Russia to become the most powerful Kremlin leader since Stalin and who changed the course of history. And soon some of those rubles began to flow out of Russia and into the West. Now, we're not suggesting that he was the first Russian to invest in London, but when Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea Football Club for £140 million, snipped today but a fortune in 2003, it made a real splash. For many of us, it was the first time we heard the word oligarch used to describe some of these newly rich and powerful Russians. Chelsea FC thrived under Abramovich. Oligarch, by the way, is from ancient Greek, meaning rule by a few. But it's come to signify a small group of Russians who made big money since the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and now often have powerful friends and great influence with the Kremlin. By 2003, Putin is firmly in power and he set out clearly how he wishes the oligarchs to behave. Meanwhile, Mikhail Khodorkovsky and his partners have been hard at work. They've weathered a financial crisis in 1998 to transform Yukos from a typically unenterprising Soviet non-enterprise into a stunning money-earning success. Anders Asland is an economist and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an expert on post-Soviet Russia. 
from 1999 to 2004, uh, Yukos uh, was a star performer in the Russian economy in every regard. It had uh, great uh, corporate uh, governance, its uh, stocks uh, skyrocketed, and um, its production uh, skyrocketed uh, as well. They uh, did everything according to the Western book. They had uh, international uh, auditors. They had McKinsey working on their uh, production. They had very nice proper uh, ownership uh, regulations and corporate uh, governance. So for those uh, five years, you can say, uh, say that Jokos uh, did everything that you could uh, desire from a good company. By the time Khodorkovsky turned 40, he'd risen from a humble Soviet childhood to become new Russia's richest man. So how did Russia go from communism to kleptocracy in just one generation? The star-crossed rivals, President Vladimir Putin and billionaire businessman Mikhail Khodorkovsky, were destined to clash and to change the course of Russian history. It happened dramatically and publicly in 2003, live on Russian TV. And there could only be one winner. Putin would secure power in the Kremlin, international influence and become the richest man in the world. Khodorkovsky would be locked in a cage at a show trial and put in prison for 10 years. The company he and his partners built and transformed would be stolen from its shareholders. Putin and his allies used two Russian state energy companies, Rosneft, a minor player at the time, and Gazprom, to swallow up Yukos. It was the most audacious theft of the big steel. But it was just the beginning. The rivalry and the struggle between Khodorkovsky and Putin showed two conflicting paths for modern Russia involving power, corruption, money and lies. It was also about competing visions for the future of a great nation which affects us all. One of Russia becoming a reformed Western-style democracy and mixed economy, the other a kleptocracy, where money is power and power is money and a small clique around President Putin holds tightly to both. And it wasn't about one country. Putin's Russia became one of the world's worst neighbours in Chechnya, Georgia, the Baltic countries, Ukraine, plus, of course, other adventures from Syria to Venezuela. Slowly, world leaders began to notice there is a Putin problem. Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea was the first time since the Second World War that one sovereign nation has forcibly taken territory from another in Europe. Putin's critics, including some in Britain, like Russian exile Alexander Litvinenko, were fated to die or become ill in mysterious circumstances. Russia watchers spoke of industrial-scale money laundering and organized crime, Russian meddling in elections, cyber warfare, and carefully targeted propaganda. Throughout the Big Steel, we'll tell the story of Vladimir Putin's Russia, of this enigmatic but ruthless leader, and of billions of dollars of Russian state assets that found their way into the pockets of some of the country's new super-rich, including the bank accounts of Putin himself. And it's not just about him or them. It's about us, too. Here's Anne Applebaum again. Russia is a one-man autocracy. 
there are no checks and balances. Putin may not decide every element of every plan or every plot, but there is no question that he sets the direction that the state then heads. Above all, Putin wants to stay in power. And once you understand that he wants to stay in power and that he knows he doesn't have legitimacy in the sense that he's not democratically elected and he, he knows he's reliant on a whole series of corrupt arrangements to stay in power, once you understand that, a lot of his other policies make sense. His foreign policy, which is focused on the need to destroy the European Union and to end NATO as far as he can do it and to get the United States out of Europe, is directly related to his need to stay in power. He sees the EU and NATO as threats to him personally, because when you add the countries of Europe together, they're stronger than Russia, but also because they represent a set of ideas that he finds to be extremely dangerous. The key to the big steal, as with other scandals, is to follow the money. And as Aslan tries to do just that. My assessment is that Putin has made a fortune of 100 to $160 billion, and it's mainly coming from Gazprom. My assessment is that Putin and his four closest friends have taken 10 to $15 billion out of Gazprom each year and uh, that uh, they have taken about as much from, uh, from other uh, companies as well. So say that they have taken $20 billion a year out of the Russian economy, and uh, they have passed it on uh, to keep it uh, abroad, because they know that they won't uh, be allowed to keep anything if they uh, lose uh, power. And altogether, we account for $800 billion to $1 trillion of uh, Russian dark money abroad and uh, say that one-third of this or so belongs to, uh, to P- uh, Putin and friends. So this is uh, the biggest kleptocracy that we have seen. It's a country in which the, the worlds of crime, business and politics became frighteningly interconnected for so long. It's certainly a kleptocracy. The guys at the top of the system have stolen for years and continue to steal. And Mark Galliotti says that if they're going to run a kleptocracy, they better do it convincingly. From the Russians' point of view, they do not think that in the current environment they can make any more friends in the West. Um, As far as they're concerned, they're faced with a choice between capitulation, pulling out of Crimea, letting Ukraine go its own way and so forth, or continuing to fight. So I think they they have decided, well, look, if we're going to be considered to be the bullies in the playground. We need to seem like the biggest, baddest, toughest bullies there. So no one will mess with us. And I think that is a lot of the calculation. It's actually that they want Russia to look formidable, because we have to remember, this is a country with an economy the size of Italy's that is trying to punch on a global level. And to do that, you essentially need to look much tougher than you really are. Looking much tougher than you are, using your opponent's strengths by turning them against him, are the classic techniques of a judo master, and judo is a sport in which Putin excels. Plus, he has one other attribute. If we look at the phenomenal brutality of his war against Chechnya, if we look at the spate of assassinations, and I'm not just talking about the Skripals and Litvinenkos that we know about, but the the Chechen fundraisers gunned down in in Turkey and so forth. I mean, this is clearly not a man who has a problem with violence. We want to end this week's episode with an explanation of how the series came about. In 2014, 
an independent tribunal ruled unanimously that Vladimir Putin's regime used its national courts to bankrupt Yukos, share the assets among state companies, and eliminate a political rival, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was placed in jail for 10 years on false charges of tax evasion and fraud. In 2016, a district court in the Netherlands overturned the original ruling, but just last month, the Hague Court of Appeal reinstated the original ruling in what is the world's largest arbitration award, $50 billion. The former shareholders in UCOS want their story told as part of the big steal. We're grateful for their assistance and funding, which has made this series possible. Next time on The Big Steal, the remarkable rise of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. I set up my own small business, which was a cafe for young people. But everybody thought, all the adults said, oh, OK, you know, a few years, we'll give you a few years, and then you end up in prison at the end of that. So how did a small-time cafe owner become Russia's most successful businessman? And why did he fall foul of Putin? Their public confrontation on Russian TV was only part of the story. There were so many reasons to go after Khodorkovsky. He wanted to build a private pipeline and he wanted to sell Yukos to uh, Chevron or, or Exxon. Putin did not want uh, that big Western influence in, in the Russian economy. He stood for transparency, he stood for efficiency. So uh, you can say that Khodorkovsky was the uh, poster boy for everything Putin really hates. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode.